So, Berto, I have a number of emails that I have aspirations to get to all of them today. And because I have 12 pages of emails or, oh, and, and, the, and the notes thereof. So Holy what macaroons. do you say? Let's get to patron emails in this episode, Berto. Let's do it. This is the Psychology of Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Umberto? My name is Umberto Castaneda, and I specialize in recounts in elections. Anonymous patron writes in, Recently, I've been watching The Vow, and then afterwards, I watched The Master by Paul Thomas Anderson. I was struck by the similarities in recruiting and brainwashing techniques. It was uncomfortable for me to watch. Do these groups use a tool set of manipulation? At what point is the science used in Nexium and Scientology no longer self-help and is an exploitation of human psychology? The morality feels murky, and I wonder if that is what contributes to the silent shame of the cult victim. Umberto, what do you think? Can systems that someone develops to try to help people be useful? let alone if we start asking about scientific and stuff. I, I do think, you know, that there's absolutely a lot of wisdom that some people accrue in their life and that sometimes they, they are able to put together some concepts in a way that they can explain to people and ends up helping people. Those folks that can do that, when they're communicating that to an audience and they say, hey, look, you want to make more money? Look, I got, I've, I've gone through this, that, and the other thing. I got 10 steps for you. Not everyone is a charlatan, right? Like some of them are like, okay, I actually have some things that are useful. Same thing if uh, like what's the uh, Marie Kondo or whatever, like... Uh, mm -hmm. Spark joy, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I do believe that people can come up with systems either through their own experience or everything they've read, whatever, that can be useful for other people. And I think that as long as they're being transparent and, and, and honest about what it can and can't do, what, and they're not being abusive and charging this, that, and the other thing or getting them hooked, I think that's all great. Uh, now, as far as like science, and, and again, even if you're being legitimate and you're not being abusive, as soon as you start claiming science, well, now, like this is a scientific method. Well, if you really mean the word scientific, that means you ran, you know, experiments that were like highly controlled and you have all the results to show. Hopefully you're published or, or you're using published results. Um, as soon as none of that exists, then your, your word science is meaningless. Uh, so my, my feeling is that most of these things, certainly Nexium and uh, Scientology, none of them qualify even close no, no one's allowed to experiment with them, let alone publish results and stuff. It's no, nowhere close to the word science being applicable. Well, it sort of depends because some of the time they are using science and they are integrating it into their system, but their entire system isn't, isn't scientifically based, if that makes any sense. Like you can yeah, use yeah. cognitive therapy ideas or narrative therapy ideas or experiential or brain science, for that matter, that you sort of understand and use it within a system that the, you know, is quote unquote science based, but the overall system has not been evaluated, if that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Like imagine I, I start a thing. So like, let's use the money thing. I've got a guaranteed foolproof system, Kirk. You come to my uh, seminar and it's a scientific seminar. And you, you're guaranteed to make more money. And you're like, really? Scientifically guaranteed? I'm like, absolutely. So you show up to the seminar 
And first thing, as soon as you walk in the door, I, I ask you, like, how are you feeling? Are you feeling a little anxious about the seminar? And then you say, yeah. I'm like, okay, great. Take this. And I give you like an anti-anxiety pill. Totally scientific. <laughs> right. And then like into it, I'm like, you know, I'm using science totally out of context and unconnected. But the whole thing, the whole presentation, it's not been scientifically proven. I can make you more money. <laughs> and, and this is why it takes experts to understand the science. There are so many people online and, and charlatans who will read a few studies or even 50 studies, really, and they don't understand the bigger context. You know, I, there's so many times people online will talk about narcissistic personality disorder or some other hot topic. And I'll, from their discussion, I can tell that they've read a lot, but they don't understand it still. They still don't get it because they're not in the clinical world. They don't have a degree. They're not a real expert. They've read a lot, but they don't really know how to put it in the context. And I, th I think that that is a, a mistake that a lot of people make, the Dunning-Kruger, right? It's like, well, I've, yep. I, I know I've memorized the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. And I have watched, I've watched literally hundreds of hours of videos on YouTube about narcissistic personality disorder. I know it better than anyone else around. And it's like, no, you do not. <laughs> right, right, right. Until you understand the clinical picture, until you actually interface with the experts, until you actually treat people, get supervised. Anyway, point is, so I've actually made a lot of episodes on this anonymous patron. You can go back and listen to just to, just to name a few. And, and a lot of them, and I had a guest on, John Atak from the UK. He's an expert on helping people deprogram from cults and he actually used to be in Scientology years ago and was such an outspoken uh, you know a proponent for helping people get out of Scientology that he was targeted by Scientology for a long time and he's wow. a pretty dynamic person but some of the um, episodes that we've done in the past uh, number 836 Back in February 2019, Berto and I did a deep dive on the psychology of the Nexium cult, actually. We, we talked about Nexium a, a year and a half ago. Yeah. Number 759, you can go to our website to find these. In August of 18, I did an episode on why do people join cults. And, and then all the way back in April of 2017, uh, episode called Combating Scientology and Other Cults. And so listen to those episodes. But... Um, there, yeah, to answer your question, there's a fine line between self-help groups and cults, and they're hard to distinguish at sometimes. So we have to de uh, develop criteria to differentiate, and there's a lot of different ideas about this. But for me, my criteria are, for their participants, are there positive outcomes? So that's one. Number two, are the negative outcomes relatively small? Because there's usually some negative outcome in any treatment, really, in any intervention. Sure. Sorry, I just banged the microphone. Uh, mm -hmm. the, number three is anyone being significantly harmed. Uh, so, so that's so. Even if the negative outcomes are relatively small, if it results in you know five people being significantly abused by the system, as is in the case of Nexium, then it's not okay, right? Yeah. So let's look at Nexium. Some people benefited from it, and from the uh, all the document documentaries, you can clearly see that 
there, there's a whole bunch of people that really liked it and benefited and liked it so much that they were willing to do a lot for the organization. It, many did not benefit from Nexium, and some were significantly harmed by uh, Ranieri or Rainier, yeah. how, however you pronounce his name. Um, Scientology, some benefit. And that's one of the things that I didn't realize until I met a guy who was in Scientology, and he talked about how it was just a kind of a self-help group, and he, he, he knew about the documentaries, and he said, yeah, I know all that stuff is kind of there, but I don't really participate in it. I just really like the community. I really like the workshops that we work on. You know, a lot of it is self-awareness and emotional expression and getting over your fears. And my life has really been improved by Scientology. But it's a large organization. Many have not benefited from it. And clearly from the documentaries, some people are significantly harmed. And I'll go into why this is in a second. Wild Wild Country, the documentary about the Rajneeshis in in Oregon. To me, it's almost like just a general feeling I get from a lot of these documentaries is that at the top, you have these very abusive people. At the Just below the top, you have a bunch of abused people. And then at the very bottom level of the pyramid, you have uh, just a ton of people who actually don't have a lot of contact with the charismatic <laughs> person. Sure. And they're almost in a, another world. And Nexium was kind of like that. Nexium had the yeah. Ranieri guy at the top who was <clears throat> abusing like a, a small set of women. And then there were hundreds, if not thousands, of people at the ground level who it was just kind of like a landmark, right? It was yeah. it was this nice thing, and none of them ever experienced anything bad. Same with Scientology. Same with uh, the Rajneeshis in Oregon. Yeah. Uh, there were a, a whole slew of people at the bottom. And from the outside, it looks ridiculous because you're like, but you don't understand. Your leader is awful. And they're like, well, but, you know, I rarely saw the the leader right. it i 99.9% of the time it was me c- creating community with these 15 people and i love the those 15 people so it's multifaceted uh bikram yoga same thing uh yeah. some benefited benny did not some were significantly harmed and lots of people at the ground level never even met the guy and loved right. the whole thing so other key criteria for cults in general, or what I like to call high control groups, because the the word cult has become so, I don't know, overused or differently defined that I find that if I just say high control organization or high control group, I, I, I think that is a better word. Because some people will call like, uh, you know, that Michael Jackson has a cult of fans on the sure. internet or something. And it's like, okay, but that certainly doesn't – it's certainly not the same thing as what right. Nexium had. Okay. So other criteria are do the members have the physical and emotional freedom to leave at any time? This is a key element that everyone agrees. Uh, and this this is true for whether or not you're in a cult-like group or you're in a relationship with a spouse. Do you have the physical and emotional freedom, meaning physical, meaning you can just get away if you want to, and emotional freedom, meaning you have the ability to just say, I don't want to deal emotionally with this situation anymore. Uh, do you have that ability to leave at any time? Well, in some groups you do, in some groups you don't. Um, also, uh, along these lines, 
do they ostracize former members? Do they look at former members as a bad thing? That's a, that's a bad sign. Um, number two are, are the members being systematically cut off from their support? Or are they being made to feel afraid of the outside world? This is a just a universal thing that uh, high control groups will do. <clears throat> high control harmful groups. Uh, number three, do the charismatic leaders have more rights at the expense of the members? And is the leader <laughs> always right? Uh, this is always true. Whenever you look at any of these high control harmful groups, the leader has more rights and they're always right. And it's always at the expense of the members, whether you know it or not. Um, and then number four are the people being exploited, money, sexually, this sort of thing. Right. Um, so the, some, some early signs for yourself to look for if that you might be in a harmful, high-control relationship, whether it's an organization like a cult or a spousal relationship. Um, but I'm going to stick to the organization. You, so let's say you join a church or a self-help group or some other group like Amway or something. Is there a charismatic leader? Because that's always a, a, the first thing you should look for. You know, does everyone right. talk about the leader or the small group of leaders as something like a celebrity? Even though you're like, why is that person a celebrity? The, right. the second thing is, is are there promises of salvation? Now, salvation is a funny word, but are there promises that this group is going to save you? And, and, and particularly, this is the only way you can be saved. That's, that's hmm. key. Um, also, let's say you like most of it, but there's some of it you don't believe in. And is that disbelief or that little bit of pushback, is it emotionally allowed? That's the key. Is it, do you feel emotionally free to say, well, I don't know, 90% of this I like, but 10% of it I think is stupid. Are you allowed to say that out loud to other members? If you're not, that's a bad sign. Because how in the world would you agree with 100% of what this charismatic leader has to say? This podcast, I am a charismatic leader. Um, I make kind of a claim that if you listen, it might help you. Right? I'm not making right. promises of salvation, but are you, as a listener, allowed to disagree with me? I would like to think so. <laughs> Whereas, like, for me, I make claims, absolute claims, that if you hear me, you will be saved, and you better not disagree. Right. And it's always mortifying to me when someone does disagree in the comments or something, and then the loyal listeners will pounce on that person. And that's when that criticizer has the right to call all of us a cult, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like there's nothing wrong with debate and there's nothing wrong with sticking up for me, I suppose, in Birdo. But there is something we just have to look at that a little carefully about like, are we creating some kind of weird Kirk cult here? <laughs> um, it, are people allowed to disagree? And it's something I watch very carefully. Um, I would love to live in a world where no one disagrees with me, but I would rather live in a world where I'm not a cult leader. <laughs> yeah. um, let's say you like to go to the meetings in this group or you like to listen to the podcast, and sometimes you want to take a break. Are you emotionally allowed to take a break? So Berto, when he went to Landmark, there are inklings in this direction, right? You told me about that first. Yeah. For, for those who don't know, Landmark is... 
I'm going to say it's similar to the it, it's it, it's all the good things of Nexium. <laughs> Let's just put it that <laughs> way. Um, and and none of the charismatic leader. Like there's no there's no like Ranieri in in the landmark world, as far as I know. Anyway, as far as I could tell, that was the case. Now the presenters and stuff present themselves as right. charismatic leaders, but in a small scale, and right. they're not supposed to be infallible and blah 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 blah. blah. Right. So there were elements that you described going to that first yeah. meeting where you weren't allowed to leave to go to the bathroom and you weren't yeah. allowed to wear your, cause you wore your, um, yeah, your, yeah. your so name I, tag upside down. I wore my name tag upside down. That was not allowed. And right. it's one thing, like it wasn't explained to me cause I could totally buy the following. Like, Hey, that's funny. Um, just the thing is like, you know, cause people are trying to talk to each other and stuff. It's really easier if they can actually see your name. Do you mind like flipping it over? That wasn't it. It was more of like, I'm paraphrasing, but we don't do that here. Right. <laughs> and then it wasn't, I, I don't know if it was the bathroom thing, but it was the, I couldn't stand up in the back because my back was hurting. I had to sit in the uncomfortable ass chair, right. whether I liked it or not. <laughs> yeah. Now, the, the big thing I want to say here is that Landmark, for the most part, anecdotally, because I've seen no research is a good thing. A lot of people benefit from it. I know close one of the founders or one of the original co-hosts of this podcast, Lita, was huge into Landmark for a long period of time. She loved it. So it it's it can be really great. But we need to look critically at it and if you're one of the people that loves Landmark and any criticism of it gets your hackles up, then you might want to think about why that is <laughs> if yeah. if an organization can't handle criticism then something's up there you know if yeah. your president for example if you can't criticize that person something's amiss you know yeah. if you have criticism of me and somehow that's naughty or wrong or something evil is going to happen then we're in a bad that's situation. Bad. That's high you control. Don't speak those words. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, as I was taking notes on this, I thought about how I once was in a band, and the leader of the band was very high control. You, I, you never actually. This is before, just before I met you, Berto. Mm -hmm. I was in a band for a very short amount of time, and there was a very high control person. And I didn't like the feeling of that, so I left the band. And it, and I remember getting really sweaty as I was telling him I was going to leave, you know? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so uh, now let's talk about therapy. Therapists are, in a sense, charismatic leaders. And they also make claims that therapy is going to help you. And let's say you like being in therapy with a particular therapist, but you don't agree with all of it. Is is it emotionally allowed and supported for you to disagree with your therapist. I certainly hope so. Okay, you like to go to the sessions, but sometimes you want to take a break from therapy. You just want to take a few months off or whatever. Is that emotionally allowed and supported? I certainly hope so. So that these are the things. Now, if you're in a high-control relationship, I want to remind everyone, as I always do, to go to the National Domestic Violence Hotline. It's online. It's called thehotline.org. It can help you to get out of situations like this. All right, let's go into another email. I want to rip through these, Berto. We have 12 pages of shit like this. Jeez. And, and um, I've only gotten one email. Okay, anonymous listener says, <laughs> I am half Latina and half white. 
I grew up in a conservative Caucasian culture. The politics of today are really confusing to me because I'm trying to reconnect with my non-Caucasian heritage, my Latina heritage. I simultaneously feel white guilt and also confusion because of how white people have acted historically against the Mexican community as well as many immigrants. I don't want to vilify white people, and I don't want to ignore the experiences of Latino people and pretend I do not inherit those experiences in some capacity. I feel pulled in different directions by racial and political communities, since I am half Latina and half white. How does one deal with this sort of divisiveness and resolve mixed heritage into one's identity? Berto, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, totally relate, man. Uh, by the way, I'm about to get in huge trouble with some, some people out there. Oh, God. The hate is about to come. Oh, God. Um, well, because, for example, as cat, I think... My cat already hates what you're saying. The cat already hates... As, as we talked about before, I used to think of myself as pretty much a Native American, a Native South American, right? Uh, I, I was like, well, I'm sure I've got Spanish in there, but, you know, I'm pretty much a Native. And then when I did my DNA test uh, in, like, uh, you know, a few years ago, it turns out I was mostly Iberian, mostly Spanish. So I was like, oh, man, I'm, I'm like, mostly white. Something like 65% or more. And then I, the native part was like in the 20 some percent. And then I had other stuff. So I was like, oh man, I'm like my, my, my ancestors came here and did a whole bunch of damage to the natives. And I felt a lot of guilt about that. Not like me personally, but just sort of like the, the thought of that people in my family tree might've done terrible things, probably did terrible things. And so that was one part. But, you know, just the other day, I was a few podcasts ago, I was talking about how I had been doing all this research about Aztecs and, man, just how much blood they like to spill. I got in huge trouble. People were like, you shouldn't perpetuate those myths that the Spaniards started, like, as if, like, cultures, as if, like, only certain cultures in history had, you know, things that today we would find not okay, you know? So, you know, it's, it's hilarious. My... My ancestry Wait, what, what was the, is mixed. What was, the issue? what was the problem? Oh, we were talking about uh, violence, and I was talking about how the dichotomy that's, that humans are able to live in, in what would seem like contradictory existences in parallel. Like, for example, I gave the example of the Aztecs, how they would have these sacrifices with tens of thousands of people sacrificed. And yet, at the same time, they had families, they loved their children, they would play together, they would build a community, build amazing structures. So they weren't like all psychopaths or something. They just had cultural things around worshiping the idea of that you need to spill blood in order to save the universe. But anyways, I said that and I got backlash from, from uh, listeners going, you're perpetuating myths started by the Spaniards, blah, 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 blah. And I was trying to like explain and using links like, no, read this research, read this research and stuff. And in the end, I remember with one of them, it came down to fine. I mean, yes, I'm not saying the sacrifices didn't happen, but just... It's the way we talk about it. It's like, okay, fine. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because it, the assumption was that I was sort of like would defend the Spaniards and stand on the side. And now if you're like, well, yeah, well, you're mostly Spaniard anyway, so that would make sense. I totally get it. It's weird. It's confusing. Who should I stand behind? Are they, are, is everyone evil? Is it just this, that? Um, I, I guess what I've found, and I just recently in the last few years came to this realization, so I haven't had a lot of time to process but for myself, three things that I know for sure. One, I didn't do it. <laughs> I didn't. Two, 
um, I like to, I try to be fair to people in general. So if there's some healing to be done from what my ancestors did, is that hopefully I don't perpetuate mistreatment of other people. And then three, um, I am proud of what I do. I am not proud of something some ancestor did. I don't, I don't find pride. I know you and I debated about this. And it's just the word. I'm just saying me personally, the way I use the word is I'm like, if I've done something and I think it's cool, I'm like, oh, I'm proud of that. So I'm also neither horrified nor proud of something that 600 years ago was done by someone I have no actual current connection to. And that's where I stand. Yeah, it's complicated. And there's a lot of debate and a lot of, I don't know, a sort of mansplaininess about that last point online about people like, I don't understand people being pr- proud of their ancestry or, you know, it's just like you didn't do it or it is a similar. Well, no, that's my point, And you and I have debated about it, but I want to clarify that these are just words. The way you use the word proud when you've described your, your prou- pride about your ancestry, I don't have a problem with it. I'm just saying me, I, just my personality type, when I use the word proud, I'll tell you what it is. What I don't like, what does bug me, is the jingoistic pride. Like, we are the best people in the world and everyone else can go to hell. And I'm so proud of being part of this group because (laughs) that's what I don't like. And because I I hate that so much, me personally, I've taken to just compartmentalizing my pride to things I've done. (laughs) Well, also, when white people are trying to run from privilege they will sometimes mansplain this online of like look that's all in the past so you shouldn't have pride about the past and you also shouldn't blame me for the things that my ancestors did it's this this thing of it's trying to whitewash what's really happening i mean the point is is that uh, it's okay to have pride about the past. It's also it's also okay about being guilty. You know, the Japanese Americans were in prison during World War II, and you know, my and my my family members, family members I grew up with, and then Japanese people, the country has raped and pillaged and done horrific Hitler esque things to the Chinese and the Koreans and others. And so, you know, it's a mixed bag. I I have pride, and I also have a tremendous amount of shame. The, yeah. the point is, is that when you have privilege, what do you do with it? That's the yep. point. Yep. The point isn't, oh, you're supposed to feel crap about yourself or, oh, that wasn't me. You know, Berto, for you, since you're part Spanish, then what do you do with the fact that your face is a little lighter? You know, you're right. in Colombia, and in Colombia, the darker-skinned mm-hmm. people are discriminating against what do you do with your privilege the, with the fact that you have Spanish right. blood in you? Do you use that privilege for good? Are you aware of that privilege? If someone, not even taking it to the far ancestry, let's say my, my dad. Let's say my dad had done something really bad to someone. Okay. So here's, here's my perspective. If that person or their child or someone comes to me, says, you, you know what your father did to me? It's horrible. It's this thing. Okay. I have a a couple of ways to react. I mean, I have infinite, but a couple of big buckets. One is to say, hey, assuming we know it's true, let's just discard whether it's true or not. Let's just say it's true. I could say, hey, that's not me. Bye-bye, right? Or I could say, oh my God, I'm so sorry that you feel this way. I'm sorry you were hurt. 
um, let's talk, like, let's be humans, you know? Um, I suppose the other extreme would be like, yes, it's my fault. I did it. I think that's also an extreme. So I think, I think to me, it's not like you're saying, it's not about who's like, who is currently at fault for things that happened 400 years ago. It's actually, what are we going to do about it? And that makes sense. So I could just turn my, turn my back and say like, screw you. I'm that's, that's not me. You got to take it up with my dad. Right. Or I could be a human and say, oh my gosh, that sounds really painful. Let's talk about it, you know, and try to be a human being. (laughs) Yeah. So to answer your question here, you know, how does one deal with this sort of divisiveness? I don't know. Being half Mexican and half white in America and a white community, I do not know. And I, I, by the record, I have never felt treated white while I've been here. Right. I mean, and I'm not saying this as like, oh, what was me? I'm just saying, as as far back as I remember, I always remember, and and you know, if you're talking about pride. I remember taking pride in it, but I always remember everyone that I interacted with immediately knowing that I'm, you know, not exactly the typical white kid from here, right. and therefore there were implications this way or the other. Like that's always been the case at work with family, friends with my friends, with everyone I've ever come into contact with in this country. That's been my experience. Yeah, same. Even though I'm largely white, apparently. <laughs> How does one resolve mixed heritage into one's identity? You don't have to, anonymous listener. I haven't. I haven't resolved my mixed heritage. I'm mixed. Yep. <laughs> I, 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 like there's a battle between my Japanese and white side. Like who's going to win? No, uh, it, I'm half Japanese and I'm half white. and my And my white side is part Swedish and part English and Welsh and Irish and Scottish. Well, as an, as an example for me, food, I still love food from Colombia. Um, on the other hand, a lot of the like soccer, I like it. Okay. But I don't, not crazy. Everyone I know in Colombia is insane for soccer. Uh, and then same thing here. Like there's things that I love that I've grown to love here. There's things I don't care about, but I'm never like, Oh, I really should because I'm this, that, or the other thing. Um, it's just I'm a mix of things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You also say, you know, I don't want to resent or vilify white people. That's fine. You don't have to vilify white people. You know, recognizing white privilege, recognizing mistreatment by white people, by people in power, doesn't mean you have to hate all white people. You also say, I am white and I grew up in a white community and I loved that community. End of quote. Um, yeah, that's fine. I also love my childhood, and I grew up in an all-white community. I have nothing but fond memories, aside from a few racist moments <laughs> uh, that that weren't that weren't fun. Hey, some of my best friends are white. Yeah. Uh, part of the thing, though, about my childhood was that I was large for my age. You know, I mean, I'm still above average in terms of body build, but I was particularly large when I was young, and the, the few moments where people tried to pick on me for my race, I just kicked their ass. I mean, there was this one time where uh, this kid, you know, he's just yelling, Chinaman, you're a Chinaman. And I hit him so hard. I, th- I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. I hit him in the gut. I didn't, I didn't believe in hitting people in the face for some reason when I was a kid. But I, I hit him in the gut so hard that – and he wasn't ready for it. And it went oh. – it went straight back to his spine. I, I don't remember hitting his spine, but I remember just feeling like my oh, fist my fist should end. You know, that 
that normally when you punch someone, there's like an end to the punch, right? Like there's a resistance that you bump up yeah. against. I remember feeling nothing but goo as I was going oh, into yeah. this guy's gut. And he was a big kid too, but I, but I was bigger. And he just dropped. I mean, oh, he, just, yeah. he just crumpled on the ground. He couldn't breathe for a minute, I'm sure. <laughs> he was crying. The teacher yeah. came outside and goes, what's going on? And, uh, and I thought, oh, my God. I mean, this looks terrible. I mean, he was yeah. calling me a Chinaman, but I punched him. And back then, yeah. I didn't know to say – the kid was calling me racist names. I mean, you know, today, I think they'd let that go. But back then, I don't know if they would have anyway. But the kid on the ground, he goes – he looks up at the teacher, and he's like, nothing. And yeah. so it was code of the warrior. The code you know? of the warrior. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> let's take a break, and we get back. Let's do a tougher bluff that I have a big – bone to pick. It's a big bone to pick, tougher bluff. What do you say, Bruno? Ooh, let's do it. All right, we're back from the break, Berto. So, oh God, um, if you were a charismatic leader in a cult <laughs> and you're yeah. trying to convince that your cult members uh, who were actually in love with you to become a patron of the podcast, what would that sound like? As I've said a thousand and twenty-nine times, our magic number. Yes, good one, good one. You got that. I am not here for me. I'm not even here for you. I am here for what all of us can become. Now, in front of you are little truffles. These truffles I made myself. And I used the secret ingredient I've been preaching about for decades to you. All you have to do now, we're almost at the end. This is it. This is what we've been practicing for. Oh God, this is this dark. This is it. This is dark. But before we do, there is just one last step. Oh. One last thing we must do. Oh my God. Uh, you will find the computer terminal to the left and left, not right. Of the truffle. There is a website open. It's already open for you. I already have it signed in for you because, as you know, you gave me all your imp information. Uh, your credit card number is already entered. I literally just need you to eat the truffle and aim your nose at the enter button. Do this now <laughs> and we will be together forever. God, that's dark. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know... I knew you were going to nail it, but I didn't know you were going to go Jonestown on me. Um, well, well, how do you know? You're making assumptions. Maybe the truffle's so delicious that they bend over in joy and hit the keyboard. Oh, I don't, I don't trust you one second. <laughs> you uh, want to need a truffle I made as <laughs> the final test? <laughs> Tougher bluff, Birdo. Seattle is the rainiest city in the United States. Tough or bluff? <laughs> no, 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 no. Bluff. Okay, so let's look at this. Um, I, I have a theory of which one it is. Okay, go go. Tell me what. Orlando. All right. Well, so um, there are different. What's your definition of the rainiest city? I mean, obviously, it can't be Orlando because it's so sunny for part of the year. Um, Actually, okay, well, uh, or um, Orlando is, is one one of, one of the rainiest okay. cities but depends okay. on how, so how do we de define rainiest city how much volume of rain falls per year or per period yeah. okay so let's look at that out of all the major cities in the united uh -huh. states you know we're talking like 
uh, 50, the 50 most, you know, uh, populous cities in the United States. What number is Seattle? Okay. Um, out of the top 50? Or all, uh, yeah. all 50, you know. All 50, when yeah, you yeah. Do, when the, you take the, right, 50 the 50 biggest cities. cities. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I would put Seattle in top 15 at least. Nope. No? Keep going. Keep going up or down? <laughs> down. So it's lower than 15. Okay, so top 10. No, no. Oh, the higher, other way. Higher, okay, okay, sorry. Right. Oh, okay. Well, and by the way, the reason I wasn't even like, oh, it's the top five is because, sure, it rains, quote, unquote, a lot in Seattle. First of all, volume-wise, we have like the wimpiest rain most of the time. Not all, all right. the time, but most yeah. of the time. Yeah. I, I grew up in Bogota. Bogota, when it rains, at least when I was growing up there, it was like the drops from hell. Yeah. And it was hard and it would like crush you for yeah. hours and yeah. anyways. In Seattle, so, <laughs> it, it's it's well known that people don't own umbrellas for that reason. Yeah. Because yeah. when it's raining, it's like barely raining. So yeah. you don't need an umbrella. I mean as a as a I literally have didn't own an umbrella until I was like, I don't know, forty years old because when I walked and I walked to school as a kid for yeah. a mile and uphill both ways. And <laughs> And never in the rain all the time, and and I don't even think I had a hood. You know, I, I just you just you just got a, you just got a little bit wet. And yeah. earlier today, I actually went on a walk, and it was raining. And yeah, I, I got a I got a little bit wet, but it's not like right. It's not no. that big way rain. But anyway, so okay, twenty five. Nope, keep Middle. going. What? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Now I'm now I'm a little mind blown. Actually, um, thirty five. Then yeah, thirty two. So, wow. So it is below the me it's below the median, okay? In wow. terms of in terms of inches in rainfall. It's 32nd. So but it, it is, is great. It is okay. So now there's the other uh the, the there are two other ways of measuring quote unquote the rainiest city. What what's the other way of of measuring that? How often it's not sunny, I guess. How often there's cloud cover. Okay, so days of cloud Heavy cloud cover. Uh, what number do you think Seattle is? Okay, now we're now we're getting somewhere, but it's got a really nice summer. So, um, gonna go. It's number eighteen. No, number one. <laughs> oh, it is. Okay, so yeah. it is very cloudy. Okay. Yeah. So uh, sixty-two. Wow, number one though. Yeah, sixty-two percent of the days are heavy cloud, which doesn't. So that's surprise. why people say that it rains so much because of that. Right. That's what when people are saying it rains all the time, Seattle, they don't know what the hell they're talking. About. They're talking about it's cloudy There's no sun. Yeah, yeah. Um, so That's hilarious. You know, and the thing I always say is, from mid September until mid June, it's always overcast and fifty degrees. You know, yeah. it's just it's yeah. just it's it's never cold. It's never warm. Yeah. It's never sunny. Now it's it's obviously not entirely true but if if you're going to take a bet on a day three months from now you would win your money if you said overcast and you know 50 <laughs> yep. degrees give or mind be a a um number what's the number two heaviest cloudiest city number two. Oh, portland <laughs> yeah portland oh really yeah um all right, but the other, the third way to measure rain rainy a city is by numbers of uh, uh, days of of rain, right? 
Yeah. So you have like how many days does it rain? How many rain? days it actually rains instead of volume? Okay. Instead of by inches, because like yeah. in Bogota, it it in in one day you could have like three three inches Delish. of rain or something. Yeah. And and so. But by, by the way, speaking of that, it would be afternoon in school. Like we're in school and we're sitting there, and we'd look out, and the sky was black. Like just black, and it was like the end of the world clouds. It was like, oh my god, what's happening? So yeah, it was big deluge. But here you're asking, what is Seattle in terms of number of days? In of terms rain? of uh, uh, days where of it ranks in terms of yeah, the, yeah, the fifty the fifty cities. Okay, I'm gonna go. Number of days is probably number five. Uh, close number six. Oh wow. Uh, okay, so. What is the okay? So I'm just going to rattle off the top ten in each category. So if we're looking at inches of rain, you know this is where Seattle is 32. You have New Orleans, Miami, Memphis, Birmingham, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, Jacksonville, Florida, Orlando, <laughs> New York City, oh, Houston, Atlanta, and Nashville. So. Oh. Those are uh, where you're getting a lot of rain. And New mm. York City kind of is confusing to me. Yeah, that one's surprising. Houston is actually kind of weird too, but that's trop, you know, that brings that's similar to Bogota with all that humidity yeah. coming in off of the But so you have the New Orleans, Miami, Memphis, Birmingham, Jacksonville, Orlando, you know, you have all that all those systems and coming in. Orlando off. doesn't surprise me because that's the lightning capital too. And it's when you're there in August, it's just the flood. Yeah. Um, now, when we go to heavy clouds, uh, top 10 is Seattle, and you got Portland, and you have Buffalo, New York. You have, you have Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Rochester, mm. New York, Columbus, Ohio, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Detroit, Michigan. So you have, Seattle, you have Seattle, Portland, and then you have, I don't know what you call it, but like the Rust Belt area. Uh, mm. Cleveland, Pittsburgh, that area. Yeah. Do they call it the Rust Belt? Anyway. Yeah, I think so because all the factories and cars and stuff. Yeah. Right? I don't know if people in that area think of themselves as being similar to Seattle, but they are. Like <laughs> Pittsburgh, Cleveland, you know, when you think of heavy cloud cover, yeah, you should also be thinking about Pittsburgh and Cleveland and Columbus and Cincinnati and Detroit and, and Buffalo. Yeah, and, that makes sense. Uh, most rainy days, top 10, you got... Rochester, New York, Buffalo, Portland. So Portland has more rainy days than Seattle does. Wow. <laughs> like, no one goes Portland, the rainiest city. No one goes, I mean, I guess part of the issue is no one thinks anything about Portland. Why do we even have a bumbershoot festival? Like, that doesn't even make sense anymore. Yeah. Uh, Cleveland, more mm. rainy days. Pittsburgh. So Rochester, Buffalo, Portland. So, but the, the, the three... Ones that really get my goat because the rainiest days that to me makes the most sense of when you're talking about the rainiest yeah. cities, Portland, Cleveland, and Pittsburgh rains more often than Seattle, wow. and you're probably getting more volume in terms of inches. You know what I mean? So yeah. by any probably any normal measure, Portland, Cleveland, and Pittsburgh rainier than Seattle, and <laughs> uh, because it now. I would not care at all about this, but I do. And why? Because I am so tired of everyone. Oh, from Seattle, where it always rains all the time. It's like, oh, 
God. I mean, sounds like a gripe of wrath. <laughs> it's like, is there anything else that you could say about anything? You know, like uh, it, it just drives me crazy. Like when I say my name's Honda, <laughs> it's like, oh, like the car. Like, uh, <laughs> gee, you know, you're the first person. All right, to make that connection. So a while ago, Berto, I was asking you about. Uh, we were we were uh, talking about Back to the Future, and I talked about how. I was confused or a bit boggled as to why Back to the Future was so beloved by today's people, even younger people, when there are so many other uh, cultural things that happened around that time. Sure. And so what I decided to – and you were making the case of like, well, of course Back to the Future is huge today because it was gigantic then. And I was saying, well, yeah, I mean it, it was big but there were so many other big things at the time that people don't have any awareness of today. And so it's just interesting. I mean, I'm glad that people like it, but it's just kind of interesting. Uh, you know, as I get older, I start to realize maybe what older people were doing when we were young. Like, like when you think of the 50s and music, you think of who? 50s? Uh, Elvis, I guess? Right. You think Elvis. Yeah. And and it, for for me and you... It's possible, even if we saw a rundown, you know, maybe yeah. Doris Day would be, even if we saw a rundown of the top 10 of each year, we'd go like, we only recognize Elvis. <laughs> I but, see Elvis. <laughs> yeah. But to people that grew up in the 50s, they'd be like, well, yeah, Elvis was big, but there were so many other things that were big. What Fat, about this, this, this? Yeah. Fats Domino, course, yeah. you know, all these other things. And so, um, so now I'm getting to that age where I'm like, how interesting it is that when people think back to the 80s. There's just a there's like a, a handful of things that people are like, oh my god, the '80s. You have, you know, neon colors and Back to the Future and Max Headroom or whatever. And I'm like, okay, but there were so many other things. Anyway, so what I decided to do was go to the charts of '84, '85, and '86 and look at the top ten highest grossing movies of those years. Okay, of those years, and then you tell. And I'm going to randomize them. Okay. And then you tell me if today's young people, you know, the average 25-year-old, uh, still kind of thinks about this thing, you know, knows about it. You know, 25-year-old okay. or 30-year-old people today know Back to the Future, you know. They know. I, I, I guess so. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they know Morty. Yeah. They know Doc. They know the. Yeah. They know the DeLorean. Right. If they saw it parodied in a... In, in a, a cartoon, cartoon, they would go, oh, that's Back to the Future, of course. Yes. In the same way that when we were young and you see some guy come out looking like Elvis, oh, obviously that's Elvis. Like if they saw, like maybe you change the names to like Rick and I don't right. know. Right. Actually, that's a good, that's a good, I mean, you got, you and I are old, but this is a good measure of if this was parodied in a young person's product, like a movie or a cartoon, would the audience, the young audience, recognize what's being parodied? Okay, say back, back to the future. Yes. All right. So yes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Okay. Um, a view to a kill. Interesting. I mean, it's Bond. Um, specifically, a view. Specifically, no. 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 Fletch. No way. <laughs> I mean, it's cult, so I see some cool in the know teenagers. Maybe they're like, oh, you gotta no. see this old man. But no. There's no way. No. Police Academy 2. No. The, Goonie, no. the Goonies. No. Uh, maybe. 
Maybe, but okay. younger me. No, no, I don't okay. think so. All right, I'll put a no. Uh, cocoon. <laughs> no. Yeah, great movie though. Uh, great, I love that movie. Yeah. Did Did you know that I think you and I are older than no. that guy that the guy yeah. who did Oatmeal? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. you're right. Uh, uh, he was Wilford. Wilford, Wilford, Wilford Brimley. Brimley or something. Yeah, I think he was, he was like, like 45 or something. When oh, he shot my God. I can't remember. Anyway. Uh, Rocky IV. Uh, maybe, yes, because of Ivan Drago, and Rocky has kept going. Yeah. Okay, all right. Yes. Uh, Rambo First Blood Part Two. Yes, because that's actually what they know. I, in fact, if you said First Blood, I'd say no. Right. But I think more of them recognize Rambo with the, okay. like, the shirtless and the... Beverly Hills Cop. Hmm. Uh, probably not. No. I mean, I Eddie love Murphy. Beverly Hills Cop. Eddie Murphy, yes. But if you had a scene where yeah, no. some Eddie Murphy like no. character was arguing no. with two white cops, no one would. No, no, no. no. Uh, Ferris Bueller. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ruthless People. No. Uh, the Golden Child, another um, Eddie Murphy movie. No, no. Yeah. Aliens. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Uh, back to school with, uh, what's his face? <laughs> yeah, no, but that's Star, Star Trek Four: The Voyage yes. Home. Yes, yeah. I mean, that one specifically, or? Yeah. I don't know. Is that the one with the whales? No. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Karate Kid Part 2. Oh, yeah, Cobra Kai. I mean, yeah. Yeah, maybe on that one, because... Yeah. Um, Not three, but yes, two. <laughs> yeah. Platoon. No. Uh, I'm going to give that one a maybe. Crocodile Dundee. I mean, is that a knife? But no, no. I'm going to give that a maybe as well. But how? Uh, like, well, because I was actually watching something, and it was a movie on Netflix, and this American girl calls out to this Australian guy, and, and, and they're young people, and uh-huh. uh, she says, hey, Crocodile Dundee. And, and, I think that's because the writers are old. I know, <laughs> okay. but they still had anyway. Uh, that's a maybe. Okay. I'm gonna uh, go no, but okay. <laughs> Top Gun. Yes, yes, yeah, definitely. Yes, Top Gun. Romancing the Stone. No, I love that movie. Terms of Endearment. No, no. Uh, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Yes, definitely. Uh, no. Yes, they even remade it. I mean, come on. What do you mean? I mean, they remade Star Trek, and they had. Kirk dying or almost dying. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop 1. <laughs> no. Uh, Footloose. Well, they remade it. So, well, I haven't I, seen that. I would imagine it. kids might, some hip kids might, yeah. like if you had yes. a scene of a guy dancing in a yeah. barn. They might, they might see it. Okay. Uh, Police yes. Academy, no. Karate no. Kid, yes. Yes. Uh, Gremlins. Yeah, man. No, I, I think uh, yeah. I think so. Yes. Like if you yes. had if you had a one of the little gremlins, the gizmo uh, is probably recognizable. Yeah, um, maybe Ghostbusters. Yes, yes. Uh, Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom, yes. specifically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think so. All right. So um, you get the picture that like with yeah. some of these, it's like definitely survived into young people culture of today. Back to the right. Future, Karate Kid, I'm guessing, Ghostbusters for sure, Ghostbusters, right? Top Gun, uh, Ferris Bueller. But then you have Crocodile Dundee, Platoon, Cocoon, 
um, yeah. Fletch was one of the top 10 movies of, of 85. That's crazy. Uh, Romancing the Stone was gigantic. Gigantic. At the time. And I would guess young people today have never even heard of it, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that's my point is that f- I don't know what it is, but some things survive, and you would say, well, because they're just good. And I, I no, don't know no, if no, that makes no, sense but, to me. But I gave other reasons. Like, some of them, I, I agree with you. It's like a little puzzling. But I, I think that the thing about Back to the Future is the car, the topic, the doc is so, like, so icon- I Certain things, you, all you can, if you can see the shadow of the thing or the outline, and you're like, I know what that is, it's because the, the style, the design is so specific that it makes it really easy to recognize. And, and again, the topic, time travel is universally interesting. The DeLorean is so unique. It's like, I don't know. It's just, it's kind of hard for it not to. Well, so from my cultural pocket, uh, Back to the Future, when I saw it in the theater, was one of many enjoyable movies I saw yeah. in 1985. Yeah. Beverly Hills Cop, to me was way bigger of a of a cultural phenomenon because of Eddie Murphy. He yeah. was dynamic in the yep. 80s. Rambo First Blood Part 2 also just ginormous. Yeah. Rocky 4 with Ivan Drago. Oh yeah. Cocoon, The Goonies, Fletch was a gigantic movie. And if you would have asked me, okay, at, you know, do you think Back to the Future will completely eclipse this in 2020? I'd be like, no way, man. You got Eddie Murphy <laughs> and Rocky and Ivan Drago and and Rambo and Cocoon and the Goonies. I mean, Fletch. <laughs> are you t- are you kidding me? Uh, you know, he was awesome. Fletch is awesome. So you know, I don't know what it is, but but I, it might be also age group too because I was I was younger than you. So when I saw Back to the Future, first of all, many of the ones you listed, I only saw on VHS or Beta. But Back to the Future, I went to the theater with my cousin Gisela, and we were mind blown. And we made a pact to see the sequel together because it was so impressive and so amazing. And I went on and on about it. In fact, it was probably the most blown away I had been about a movie since Return of the Jedi. Mm, interesting. So, you know, it's, I think it's an age thing too. Like my, I was... At just the right age, 10 years mm, old, basically. I was just the right age, too. I was 14. and uh, the, You're into other things. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I remember feeling like this movie was definitely right up my alley. You had, uh-huh. a, you know, a, kind of a nerdy but try-to-be-cool guy. And yeah. he, he was bullied. I don't know. Anyway, uh, yeah. let's call it a day, Berto, because I want <laughs> we'll to. We'll never finish <laughs> <laughs> Everyone out there, uh, you know, disagree with me at will and never, ever feel like you can't because, my goodness, uh, if you don't, I'm coming for you. <laughs> and everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.